My name is Christina Hussert. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and a Fellow here in the Philosophy Department. And today's event is part of the Forum's um, series of events that we call the Dialogues, where, obviously, as you can see, we have two philosophers talking to each other and, of course, also to you um, about either a topic or an important uh, person or an important uh, event or an important idea. Um, and in this case, the topic will be Philippa Foot, which is also um, part of a, a series, as it were, within that series of dialogues, namely a series on important women philosophers. So a couple of months ago, some of you might have been here, we had a dialogue with Iris Murdoch, who was, of course, a contemporary and good friend of Philippa Foot's, and so we thought it would be nice to actually follow up that dialogue with this dialogue on, on Philippa Foot. Um, and here to talk to each other and to us about Philippa Foot are two um, very excellent philosophers whom I'm very happy to have here, namely Sarah Brody, who is a professor of moral philosophy at the University of St. Andrews. Um, before coming to St. Andrews, she taught at the universities of Edinburgh, Texas at Austin, Yale, Rutgers, and Princeton. And she's a specialist in classical philosophy uh, and interested in many areas of metaphysics and ethics, modern as well as ancient. She's also a fellow of the British Academy, of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Um, and then as her partner in this dialogue, we have Alex Vorhofer, who is a reader here at the philosophy department at LSE. He's just returned from a research leave at, uh, that he spent as a faculty fellow in Princeton's University uh, Center for Human Values. He's um, also got broad research interests, including uh, research interest in liberal egalitarianism, uh, where he asks questions, for example, such as that some are worse off than others. Uh, he's also got a research project called The Economy of the Soul, where he's interested in investigating what psychology reveals to us about how we make decisions, and then what moral, moral theories and choice theory tell us about how we should make decisions. Um, and in 2009, he published a book entitled Conversations on Ethics, where he interviewed a lot of um, important moral philosophers on their theories, um, a book that I highly recommend. So uh, some of the questions that Philippa Foot was concerned with uh, are also broadly in this area of moral philosophy. So, for example, she asked questions such as, why be moral or maybe kill one to save others? Is morality objective? Um, and Alex and Sarah just told me that the way that they're going to do this dialogue is, uh, after a brief introduction, they'll discuss four topics amongst each other uh, for about 40 minutes, and then we'll have um, a lot of time for discussion afterwards. So um, I won't say much more, just hand over to Alex and Sarah and look forward to the dialogue. Thank you, Christina. Thank you. And, and thanks, everyone, uh, for coming. Uh, so, yeah, we, we've, I won't be uh, boring you with a whole lot of slides, but I thought it would be useful for you and us to, to, to pin us down on some of the key themes in um, Philippa Foote's thought that we'd like to cover today. There's a, a picture of uh, Philippa Foote. Um, and discussing it amongst ourselves, we thought that, you know, there are really four things that, that stand out in her, uh, in her work. One element is her philosophical style, so we'll discuss that for a little bit. What makes her so particular as a philosopher? And, and any one of you who ever 
has opened up one of her books or articles. We'll, we'll find this in a fresh, engaging style, but also with a, a particular slant, which is informed uh, uh, to a large part by, by Wittgenstein's uh, philosophy. Um, so we'll talk a bit about that. Then her, her maiden target in life was moral subjectivism. And uh, we'll give you a definition of that and, and talk about her response to it and how successful or unsuccessful that uh, response was. Uh, moral subjectivism, very roughly, we'll get to a more precise definition later, is the idea that um, there is uh, no objective truth in morality. Uh, moral judgments are just constituted by uh, some uh, judgments of your own about the desirableness or the appropriateness of some uh, form of action or inaction, and you have certain attitudes that you express when you make a moral judgment. It's like lying is wrong. is basically saying, I disapprove of lying, or as some people have said, boo for lying, um, is the uh, moral subjectivist view that was her target. Another main question that she addressed was, was why be moral? And we'll look at that uh, as well. And finally, she became famous through uh, her work on a series of moral dilemmas, as she called them. Um, and she's the godmother, we should say, of the trolley problem that many of you may have heard of. If you haven't, we'll, we'll rehearse not every version of the trolley problem, but the, her, her first initial version is very interesting. Um, but to begin, I'll just mention a few things about her, her life besides the things she worked on. So she was born in 1920 into a... Uh, a, a rather uh, aristocratic family which she said favoured uh, hunting and shooting and uh, fishing uh, and uh, she didn't receive any formal education out of the home I believe uh, you might correct me on this until she went to university she had a governess um, and uh, she said that uh, governesses were not much use especially not with math uh, but they, did, uh, they were kind of pleasant to talk to um, uh, but one did push her, uh, and uh, she said, made her try to, to uh, go to university, and she tried to get out of this, she said, uh, rather socially snobby, uh, but not intellectually snobby background to uh, the well-known egalitarian haven of Oxford, um, where she studied at Somerville College and worked during the war uh, as an economist in the civil service and shared a room with Iris Murdoch, I believe, uh, shared a flat um, where they became friends. And it may be interesting to note that in this time was, of course, the time of the Blitz and uh, V1 and V2 rockets raining down on London. And there's an interesting connection between uh, the trolley problem, which we'll get to at the end, and something the British government did at the time, which they were, uh, so to speak, in the firing line of, which is redirect uh, the V1 and V2 rockets onto less populated areas of London. We'll come to that parallel uh, later. Uh, after the war, she returned to Somerville College and uh, uh, under, partly under the influence of Anscombe really started working on uh, moral philosophy and um, uh, wrote wonderful collections of, of articles, some of which I have here if you want to look at them uh, afterwards, working on these questions. Um, then had a period working in the United States at various universities like UCLA, uh, where she uh, worked for quite a while and returned to uh, Somerville. So that's an outline of her 
of her uh, life and some of the problems she worked on. Um, but Sarah has, was, has more personal recollections as well, right? Yes, thank you very much. Um, well, I was taught by Philippa um, in the 1960s. I was at Somerville and she was um, one of the moral philosophy uh, tutors there. Um, I have to say, I, uh, I remember vividly her as a tutor giving us, or me, tutorials. I don't remember a single lecture that she gave, and whether it's just for some reason she was not lecturing during that time, or that's my deficiency. I, maybe she was and I didn't go, which I don't think is very likely, or else I've just forgotten. But anyway, um, she was a very kind person, I mean, extremely generous person, uh, everybody who knew her. Um, echoes, echoes that. She had lovely manners, but not at all um, intimidating. Or uh, She was a very modest person. Um, and although she was so nice, uh, one of the most important things about her was that she had very, very high standards, intellectual standards. And I think this, of course, went with the modesty because she gave a very strong... She sort of gave out a very strong sense of... Without going labouring it how hard it is to do philosophy. And, you know, and she, she somehow managed to convey that so as to make herself and oneself very serious, but without it making it intimidating or making it seem some kind of elite enclave, you know, which one had no hope of, uh, of sharing. She had a wonderful sense of humour. She was always laughing, uh, not a loud laugher, as I remember, but sort of laughing and chuckling, over some weird implication of a philosophical view, you know, an academic philosophical view. Um, she was rather elegant in a quiet and, again, not particularly intimidating way. But, you know, I have to say that to be more elegant than the average don at Somerville, especially in those, was <laughs> not a hard thing to achieve. <laughs> um, she... Um, she was not a militant feminist. I mean, her life just, you know, she, she as it were, wasn't in the right um, generation. Um, and whether she would have been born 20 years later or whatever, I haven't, just couldn't possibly begin to guess. But <clears throat> on that sort of general topic, I have to say that she was a wonderful example uh, for younger women, uh, whether in philosophy or in some other academic career, um, and looking back, I, reali I realised that without... I didn't think of it like this way at the time, but looking back, I realised that she, in fact, was a wonderful example of a teacher, um, whether a male teacher or a female teacher. I mean, she just had the right combination of high standards, very friendly, accessible personality, and um, what more do you want, really, from... And very conscientious. You know, she would always... There was never any messing around with punctuality or anything like that. As far as being a wonderful example for younger women in um, academic life, um, I have to say that in this respect, um, she was a sort of foil or a contrast with Elizabeth Anscombe, who was also my tutor, not, I think, simultaneously, and um, who was at Somerville at that time before she went to a chair in Cambridge. Uh, because Elizabeth Anscombe was definitely, as I'm sure everybody knows, um, a, I mean, she was a terrific philosopher, um, uh, but she was a very intimidating person. Uh, whether she had to be for various reasons, 
Um, I expect it was a mixture of pers just basic personality and, as it were, having to be. Um, and she was also, in some ways, uh, somewhat eccentric. Uh, not a wild eccentric, but, you know, not a kind of middle-of-the-road person. And so not very many of us would have dared that, or even necessarily wished to be like Elizabeth Anscombe. We were, you know, so much in awe of her. But Philippa, with her, it was different. One could, as it were, imagine um, going, following in the tracks of, of someone like Philippa Foote. So those are my personal reminiscences. Good. Well, it's, it's, it's funny you mention Anscombe. Um, when I, I did an interview with um, Philippa Foote for the, for the book that uh, Christina mentioned, and uh, I asked her who was her biggest influence, and she said Elizabeth Anscombe, but it wasn't uh, fun <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> and she described her going to her seminars where Anscombe would propound a view and Philippa would uh, object, 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 and, and she would be... Uh, she said, I was like one of those cartoon characters who would be hammered down into the ground by a great boulder or, uh, or a man with a big mallet, uh, but who appeared in the next episode uh, unscathed <laughs> back next week, objecting again. Um, uh, and I, I had one or two other things about uh, uh, her style, right? So this is a bit more than just about personality, though there is one funny thing she says at the beginning, which is not just funny, but I think also very accurate of her view. She says, I'm not clever at all. I'm a dreadfully slow thinker, but I have a good nose for what's important. And even though the best philosophers combine cleverness and depth, I prefer a good nose over cleverness any day. And now, it's very, it's, it's nicely expressed here and, and uh, with humility, but, uh, or some humility anyway, uh, but there is a critique here of the way a lot of academic philosophy might read, especially to someone untrained in the discipline, which is, you open a book on uh, ethics and it'll be full of isms, and uh, moves and counter moves in a very elaborate, what looks like an extremely elaborate chess game. Uh, by contrast, if one reads uh, Foote's work, there's very little jargon. There's always honing in directly on the core of the problem. And her first question is always, what's the worry? What is the problem exactly? And some of her papers spend a lot of time just trying to figure out what precisely the worry is that gets us going in our, our, our moral questioning. And that's the, the, the second point which, in which her style of doing philosophy, I think, is, is influenced by Wittgenstein, who was, of course, uh, who influenced Hanscom. Uh, so she said to me that uh, she was once at a seminar where a, a speaker uh, was realized that the, there was some absurd implication of his view, and so he withdrew back from the ledge. He was about to express it, and then realized, oh, what I'm going to say now is really stupid. I'm not going to say this thing. And Wittgenstein got very angry and said, say it, you know, say what you want to say, and then we can do some philosophy. Because then we have in our hands the problem, which is at the heart of your view. So uh, this is what she said she learned from that. Uh, whenever I find myself tempted to pass over an odd thought, I press myself to do the opposite. So I'd say, stick with the odd thought, it's gold. The philosophical interest is where the trouble is. And I think that's a very, uh, again, it's something that marks her work, but is a very useful general 
attitude in, in philosophy to make sure that we've started where we think there's a problem. Mm. Right? Was that your experience as well when you uh, were um, taught by her? I think I was too unsophisticated to be able to make observations like that. I mean, mm. I was just learning philosophy for the first time, really, mm. yeah. Um, and, of course, again, I, as it were, again, it just shows that I probably wasn't living properly in the real world, but I, did not, I was not aware that she was or was going to be such an important person, mm. yeah. Um, but um, I certainly agree. I mean, having read her work many, you know, many, a number of times over the years, I certainly agree with everything that you have just said. Um, she, um, well, she in her, I mean, her whole method and approach to all the problems that she discussed was um, she brought to it a very, not just an ordinary language sensibility, which of course was the sort of standard. Um, um, a necessary qualification in Oxford at that time. Um, but I think a, a very clear perception of ways in which ordin so-called ordinary people, uh, which of course is almost all of us, uh, feel and think, particularly about morality and um, related questions, about things, you know, things that are important from a practical point of view. So she took this very seriously. Um, the result was that um, what Alex just quoted about her not being impressed by cleverness, um, I would say she was completely unmoved by the sort of theoretical beauty of some moral theory. I mean, obviously consequentialism or some simple form of consequentialism uh, comes to mind. You know, it brings everything under one principle. Um, it's simplifying. It unifies um, it's supposed to unify all our moral intuitions and so on. Of course, many people don't think it works. Um, so it has got a sort of simplicity and beauty about it of a theoretical kind. And I think more than almost anybody else that I've encountered, directly or indirectly, she's... I mean, she wasn't... Um, it's not as if she had a sort of philistinic kind of... I don't care for beauty, even theoretical beauty... Uh, there was nothing crude about it, but she just wasn't moved by that. So if, for example, there was a, um, some kind of clash, as obviously there is, between co some consequentialist um, implication and some datum of so-called ordinary morals, uh, common sense, uh, Philippa wouldn't immediately jump to the aid or jump to the support of the common sense. I mean, you know, she was too good of a philosopher to do that. But she would, she would really take both sides very seriously. And I think that that's a very, at least if you're doing normative ethics and the parts of meta-ethics that sort of impinge, may impinge on that, I think that provides a very good model um, for people. Yeah, perhaps we could uh, move on to the next of our questions and then... Cause there, there yeah. is a, 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 a sense in which her sticking to common sense um, helped her respond to, to moral subjectivism, uh, which was a, a dominant attitude at the time in philosophy, and I think that it's also the dominant attitude among first-year undergraduates in philosophy at LSE, uh, which is, uh, I may be oversimplifying, but here's a, here's a precise way of, of putting it, which is that moral judgments uh, just express your evaluative attitudes and intentions, um, and that knowledge about the, the facts of the case, for example, that uh, 
my children are starving and uh, they won't uh, be fed unless I feed them. Uh, those are the facts, right? Uh, that doesn't compel any moral judgment whatsoever. Uh, I'm, so to speak, uh, what, what makes it a moral judgment if you, if you think you ought to now feed your starving children because you can and stop watching TV, for example, or reading your philosophy book, um, uh, that moral judgment only happens when you have a certain attitude, an evaluative attitude of disapproval of my continuing to uh, read uh, the latest uh, article on ethics uh, or watch uh, uh, TV, uh, and approval of the act of taking care of one's kids. But these are not compelled in any way by the facts, these judgments. So there's a strong fact-value distinction. And um, uh, basically, I mean, Sarah, you said, uh, we, we spoke a bit before that uh, Philippa took a, a kind of uh, attacked this view from the perspective of... Um, a mix of common sense and an appeal to the vices and virtues. Is that right? Yes. Well, um, I think her sort of earliest um, kind of uh, effort against this subjectivism was to argue or just bring to people's attention, really, that um, judgments about... I mean, it may be... Um, judgments, moral judgments, using very abstract terms like right and wrong, okay, or good and bad for that matter... Um, maybe this theory of the fact-value gulf or divide might seem, as it were, to, um, um, to work in the context of those abstract judgments. But um, she focused, and here she was, um, I think, very much encouraged, um, perhaps inspired by Elizabeth Anscombe's work. Um, obviously, Anscombe got her, or you know, suggested reading Aristotle and reading Aquinas, two of the, the great heroes of both of them. So, anyway, the, to come to the point, Philippa pointed out that um, um, making the case for judging somebody to be a coward or brave or um, dishonest or fair-minded or trustworthy or, you know, a traitor or something like that. These are all moral terms, but they're full of descriptive meaning, as the jargon is, okay? And it seemed to her reasonable to, 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 to think that um, these are actually, in real life, outside the academy, we actually treat these as factual judgments, true or false. We base them on factual evidence, and so on. So this was a kind of way in, a very important way in, to um, criticising in a, um, in a, you know, on a sound theoretical basis, not just because one doesn't like it, that fact-value distinction. Um, and can, can, can I ask you, you about you, that a you, bit? Yes, please. Because, uh, so, how does this work precisely? The idea is that uh, a virtue like courage... Um, is, a, is an inextricable mix of, of uh, ascribing to someone the virtue of courage. So mm -hmm. I say, Jane is courageous. Yes. I can't separate out neatly the, the fact and value claims that I'm making. In, uh, they, they somehow go together. But right. That was her claim. That, in other words, unlike, well, contrary to what Alex was saying a, a few minutes ago, um, 
we can't just decide. We, it may seem plausible to say that we can decide whether to say that something is right or wrong or good or bad um, somehow as we choose, and that somebody else faced by exactly the same facts might come to the opposite good, bad, right, wrong judgment. Mm. The answer to that that she started to d develop back then was maybe leave aside those abstract judgments. Let's look at more sort of, th as they came to be called, thick moral terms like courageous, dishonest, um, unreliable, those kinds of terms. And she said, it just doesn't, isn't plausible here to say that um, you, could, you, could look at ex you and another person could look at exactly the same facts and one of them come to the conclusion that the person is dishonest and the other person come to the conclusion that, the, that he or she is honest. I mean, the person under consideration. So that, in other words, if we move away from that, those abstract terms to these so-called thicker terms, then the, the great classic distinction um, seems to come, seems to begin to crumble. But can't we yeah, both yeah. agree that someone is honest mm. and still hold a different judgment on the fact? So I say, yes, Jane is a very honest person. And... Uh, I think that uh, honesty is for suckers. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so we're, we're agreeing on the same facts, but we can attach different values to it. So I, I don't yet understand how speaking in terms of virtues helps us get past the fact-value distinction. Yes, well, I mean, that, I think that um, Philippa, as it were, was facing this kind of objection, this kind of criticism, this valid criticism, um, in many ways throughout her, her philosophical career. So, for example, um, um, in Plato's Dialogue Republic, one of the characters other than Socrates takes very much this line, and there's other places in ancient philosophy where we find this. So somebody says, okay, you know, this person is just and righteous and all the rest of it, but A, so what? And B... Uh, you know, I have very good reason, and perhaps really all of us, except that we've been brainwashed, have had, have very good reason not to be like that. Exactly. Okay. What does the so-called virtue ethicist, right, which this name wasn't used at that time, but it's what sort of came to be used for this Philippus kind of one of her approach. Uh, what does the virtue ethicist say in reply to that? And um, it's not just a case of rather, perhaps rather crude um, opponents of a Socrates, but um, one philosopher whom uh, Philippa took extremely seriously um, was Nietzsche, because, of course, in a much more sophisticated way, and one which, as it were, appeals to a whole lot of our modern <coughs> sensibilities, um, he, was too, was making the case for, OK, so let's agree that that is morality, but... I don't like it very much, and uh, a person who, a really enlightened person, a thoughtful person, a person who's not been browbeaten or brainwashed, is going to join me in not liking it very much, right? So she realised that she had to deal intellectually with, as it were, a whole new level, not just these Oxford philosophers who've gone on, on about fact value, but to people who made the comeback that you just gave. Yes, I mean, there's an element of, um, well, let me put it sharply and see what you, what you think about this. There's an element of conservatism if one says, look, this is the way we talk about morality. You can't ascribe 
to call someone a murderer without thinking it's a bad thing. So the fact and value mix together there. Or you can't call someone a coward without thinking it's bad. Um, so the, the, facts that you, the facts determine that someone is a coward in these circumstances and that you must think it's a bad thing. Um, our, moral, uh, our moral norms about what we regard as a virtue or vice change over time mm -hmm. and to merely... Um, uh, for example, uh, Peter Singer might think and has argued that uh, certain forms of, uh, of, of caring attitude towards infants, new, uh -huh. newborns, are, might be regarded as virtuous, right. but are entirely inappropriate. Um, or uh, in other times, people thought that uh, you know, uh, homosexuality was an abomination and a, a vice, mm -hmm. and we, uh, in part because of uh, moral theory, uh, mm -hmm. like uh, uh, you know, Bentham was one of the first to argue that in, in favor of uh, legalizing uh, homosexuality. So the, the, the thought is that there's a conservatism, perhaps, at the heart of um, appealing to common sense <coughs> morality and the common way we use certain vice and virtue terms. Um, which uh, a more theoretical stance can overcome. Um, yes, and I, you know, if I was if I was trying to argue on behalf of Philip Foot, I'm not entirely sure what I would say at this point. Mm. Because I mean, what you've just said is obviously something one has to take very seriously. There would never be um, cultural, uh, let's just call it progress in values. Although obviously things can go the other way as well, if there were not, as it were, some slippage as between facts and how we estimate those facts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't see how she could possibly have denied that. Uh, so that maybe the, um, our views over the centuries or something might change as to, you know, what really does count as a brave person and what doesn't. I mean, Aristotle's courageous person is entirely depicted on the battlefield. You know, it's as if... I'm not saying that he really believed this, but I mean, it's as if courage had no role in any other area of life. Mm. Yeah. The idea of a female courageous person almost becomes, given the, the social circumstances, kind of contradiction in terms, right. and so on and so on. Um, um, I mean, I wonder whether we should have, since we brought in, or I brought in Nietzsche, um, whether we should move the discussion just a tiny bit and so, uh, away from this question of our standards or our criteria for calling someone or regarding someone as brave, as um, um, having integrity or whatever virtue word you want, these standards might shift and change, right? Um, maybe we should move a little bit to the question about the great big question about why should I be moral? Sure, right? Yeah. Which is really, you know... Even if, let's, let's just home in on um, a society or on the whole world, if you like, at a given point in time. Okay, so let's suppose that, that almost everybody in the world has the same moral standards, would that it was so. Yeah. Or maybe we should be glad that it's not so. Anyway, um, whatever. So just about everybody agrees, you know, this is just behaviour, this is unjust, and all the rest of it. Um, and that's morality. And then comes along this revolutionary and daring thinker and says, well, why should I care about mm. being moral? 
And, of course, the edge to that question, as I'm sure everybody knows, is that morality, which Plato's word is justice, and the dilemma comes up in in the context of his dialogue Republic, but morality um, or justice um, does sometimes require us, as it seems, to go against our own interest in the interests of others, right? Um, And that seems to be just the way it is with justice. And so there's a real question. Why should I do that? You know, and if I just say, oh, well, you know, I, I would feel guilty if I don't or something, then the eagle-eyed, brave um, the- questioner like Nietzsche um, or like Plato's character will say, well, if you feel guilty, it's only because you haven't really thought this through and you go with the herd, right? So a really interesting and, you know, actually quite dramatic, philosoph- but nonetheless very philosophical um, dialogue opens up here, and she was very, very interested yes. in that. Whether you think she had an adequate answer to why be moral, Alex, I'm going to yeah. leave. I'm going to leave you to, well, s- to say about so, that. So uh, it's it's interesting that she, this is the, the oldest, one of the oldest questions in ethics, right? That starts as as Sarah was saying, this, the uh, the Republic um, starts about this question: Why should I uh, do what uh, what's claimed to be right when it goes against my interests? Um, and Foot grappled with this during her life, and, and I think it's fair enough to say that there are two two versions of the her attempts to answer. Um, the first was simply to to say that an amoralist, so a person who doesn't even recognize the force of moral reasons at all, uh, that there's nothing wrong with this person, uh, in the sense of uh, there's nothing. The person uh, may be, you know, uh, callous, cruel, selfish, etc. So we can. Uh, say that uh, he or she has various vices, but we cannot claim that the person is irrational. There's nothing in reason that compels us, or so she said at the time, to uh, take morality seriously. So we can claim that the person is defective in many ways, they're nasty, cruel, uh, unpleasant, but they're not irrational. And her analogy at the time, uh, the paper was called Morality is a System of Hypothetical Imperatives, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, was with the rules of etiquette. So etiquette tells you, I think her example was, one must not eat peas with a spoon. Is that it? Yes. Yeah. So that's a, uh, a categorical imperative. Like Carl <laughs> One must not eat peas with a spoon. That applies to you whether you want to uh, be engaged in this game of etiquette or not, right? You're being rude if you eat your peas with a spoon, or at least in the world in which she was, uh, in which she grew up. However, she said, uh, you might not care one whit for etiquette, and no amount of uh, banging on about how important these rules are will make you change your mind if you don't care about the ends of etiquette. And she, she drew an analogy there with morality, saying the same goes for morality. Just as you can call someone rude who... Uh, or uncouth who eats his peas with a spoon, uh, you could say uh, direct certain uh, derogatory uh, claims towards someone who's immoral, but they're not being irrational. However, later she changed her view on this, and she claimed that it's part of being rational to recognize the force of moral reasons. So that part of the trouble, she said, with trying to find what reason do I have to be moral is that the whole question is a mistake on her later view. We're already confused. 
to, to think that um, the, the, the picture is, that the, the earlier picture she had of rationality was something close to what Hume proposed. So Hume famously said, it's not irrational of me to prefer the destruction of the entire world um, uh, over the scratching of my finger. Uh, my, by little which, finger. my little finger, not just any finger, my <laughs> little finger. And what he, what he what meant uh, with that is, look, we, can, we don't dispute about, uh, or we, we can dispute about ends, but it's not irrational for you to prefer any kind of thing as a final end. All that's irrational is not taking the right means to your given ends. That's where you might be <coughs> irrational. So means end rationality, no, irra no rationality or irrationality in your particular aims. Uh, later, Foote said uh, something, that, uh, you know, she might have said the following to Hume, uh, what would one say to someone who said, I prefer the destruction of the entire world to the scratching of my little finger? One would say he's insane. <laughs> you're crazy. And that's a way of saying you're irrational. Um, basically saying that to reason also belongs the choice of our ends, not merely the means to certain ends, but also the choice of the right ends. Now, trained as an economist, I much, was much on Hume's side here, so I liked her previous Hume, and I just wanted to put up a bit of a dialogue that I had with her on this. So uh, I must say that when I did the interview with her, it was a long time ago, I was still a student, and I arrived very well-dressed, but also very nervous and a bit early. So before I rung her bell, I stood uh, just outside her garden smoking uh, some cigarettes to kind of calm my nerves. And she must have seen me from her window because when I started questioning her about this, uh, this idea of uh, rational criticism of ends, she said, enough with your questions. I'm going to ask you some questions. <laughs> and she said, what would you say about a young person who doesn't care about the chance of getting lung cancer due to smoking in 20 years' time? Do you call this contrary to practical rationality? And I said, I'm trying to stick, you know, with my Humean guns. I said, it depends on what this person's attitudes are, right? If he doesn't care uh, about uh, his health, then he's not doing anything irrational. She says, what if this young person cares about being well-dressed? At forty, she was pointing to my new suit but not about his health at 40. And then I made, I paused, and I did the thing which she tells you to do, and Wittgenstein told you to do, just come out with the troubling and odd thought, even though you know you've just, you know, you're going to uh, make trouble for yourself. I said, although he's being consistent, I might want to say that he's not recognizing something that he should recognize. And then she realized she had the fish on the hook when she said, ah, and where do you get that should from? Right? Because... The should, she claimed, is a rational should. I ought to here not endanger my health for a tri trivial pleasure, and it's being irrational of me not to care enough about my health relative to the, the trivial pleasure I was seeking. So that was her attempted answer um, to simply say, dismiss the question as a non-question almost, that, and insist that caring, to, at least to some extent, about other people's well-being, about being honest, about caring for one's children, about uh, not being a coward, etc., is just part of what um, a rational person cares about. Now, to me, 
I was I, I struggled mightily in the, the rest of the interview, but I didn't manage to, to, to get her into any difficulty, I'm afraid. Uh, it just sounds like insisting that you ought to have take certain things as your ends, and if you don't, you're irrational, you're rationally defective. And I'm still quite uncomfortable with that, but um, I don't know what you make of this solution. Um, well, of course, she spent a lot of time as, um, in the sort of second part of her life as a philosopher working on um, this notion of, well, tying in the, uh, the human virtues that we've talked about a bit uh, to the idea that there are um, universal and very basic human needs, right, and were we not... So it's not just a matter of being a rational being as such, which is kind of Kantian way of look, looking at it, but being a human rational being. Alistair MacIntyre, in one, one of his books, um, has this wonderful title um, of Dependent Rational Animals. So we're rational animals which are vulnerable, which need security, which have to be constantly fed and maintained of... We belong to families and communities in which some people are stronger or healthier and others are weaker and so on and so forth. Those weak ones also have to be taken care of. They can't do it themselves, etc., etc. And this, this is the kind of being that we are. And so she built quite a lot of her answer to the amoralist um, who just says, well, why, you know, why can't my ends be just anything that I like? by simply pointing to these facts of human nature. Okay. Now, of course, this doesn't really, and I think Philippa was always aware of this, <clears throat> it doesn't really get over that huge hurdle about justice because, you know, maybe everybody cares about their own and their own loved one's security and health and flourishing and all the rest of it. That is, we... But we also know that even if... You, um, Selfishness is not the only human motive. We do know that selfishness is one very powerful human motive. And human beings throughout the generations, I mean, this is never going to change, have had to struggle to, sometimes to do the right thing, even though it's against their own interest. And, and painful, right? Not just deleterious, but, uh, but painful. And so... Pointing to these great needs of human life doesn't, I think, quite get us where we want to. However, she was very emphatic about the fact, and I think that this is, I've, in my view, it's correct, that we are not artificially social animals. Society is not just an artificial construct, although, of course, how you run society might be, as it were, conventional or largely conventional, but that we are social is a basic natural fact about us, just as much as the fact that we walk on two legs or, you know, that we have language. And, of course, having language and being social creatures is kind of bound up with each other. So that that, I think, was her first kind of step. That was where she tried to put her foot in the door of this problem about justice, you can't have society, even small societies, maybe especially small societies, unless you have enough people being just. And individuals need society. They need love. They need support. They need even sometimes to be able to give those things like love and support, not just to receive them. Um, so that you need enough people, um, well, respecting justice, 
for that particular human, uh, collective human need uh, to be able to be fulfilled. Yes, so... Does that answer your problem? Not fully, but you know what? Rather than, ha- than continue this, this point further, perhaps we can just cover her last bit on, on uh, dilemmas and then we can have more of a... Oh, yes, I must, we mustn't forget the trolley right? problem. Yes. Yeah. So um, this one, uh, although it, it occupied only a very small part of, um, of, of Philippa's work, uh, she, I mean, she wrote on many moral dilemmas, uh, but here's one which was particularly, uh, became particularly famous, and she started out with the following puzzle, um, which is, why is it, um, take, take a case, uh, someone walks into a surgery uh, who's perfectly healthy, and the doctor eyes him up and thinks, aha, you know, two healthy kidneys, a liver, a heart, and some lungs, that's just what I need in the room next door to save five uh, separate people. And he happens to have the right blood type as well. So the man comes in with slight stomach pain. He says, oh, this is really not looking so good. Take this. The man, uh, uh, he, he gives him an instant poison. He dies on the spot and uses the organs to save five others. The thought there is this is that transplant case, as I'll call it. Uh, and as Foote said, we would think this is outrageous, even though uh, there are five lives saved at the cost of one. Um, and she thought, there's a puzzle here, not so much about that judgment, but about how that judgment compares to the following case, which she called the, the trolley case, if you flip it and get it. Now, there's an important way in which she described this case, which is different from later ways in which it, it showed up. So I'll go with the, the old-school original version, which is, you're the driver of a trolley, which is headed, not like this arrow, but straight towards five people who will be crushed on the track. And it's important, uh, perhaps, that the... The brakes have failed. The, the brakes have failed, right? So you can't brake. Uh, all you can do is direct it onto a different side track where there's one, and kill one instead. She said, now, here it seems perfectly permissible to kill one in order to save the lives of the five. So what can explain the difference between the transplant case and this trolley case? Now, she considers there a, a, a Catholic doctrine, which is known as the doctrine of double effect, which says, um, roughly, you're not, you, you, can't do, uh, you can't intend harm to one in order to do greater good, but you can um, cause harm as an unintended side effect of your action, uh, which uh, leads to the greater good on balance. So that principle could explain this difference. Right? The, the, the transplant case, you're intending harm to the one. You're chopping him up, using him as a means in order to save the five. Uh, whereas in this case, the harm to the one is entirely an unintended side effect. As she says, suppose that... Uh, In the transplant case, the man uh, figures out what you're trying to do and uh, tries to make off, right, escape before you administer the lethal dose, right? You'll trap him and make sure he swallows the the poison pill. Whereas in this case, suppose by fortune you miss the man, the the driver of the trolley will not get out and use a wrench and brain him (laughs) uh, in order to make sure that he's really and truly dead. So there's a strong difference in the intentions in, in both cases. Even though it works in this case, she rejects the principle um, for reasons we could 
go into, but uh, her main uh, solution is, she says, you should go for something different in this case. Rather than this rather strange thing of intention, why should it matter whether I intend someone's death or not, what part he or she is of my plans, she says, we can explain it in the difference between negative and positive rights. So you have a negative right not to be harmed. Uh, you have a positive right to be helped. And negative rights are stronger, she says, more forceful than positive rights. So in the transplant case, five people have a positive right claim, right to be saved. One person has a right not to be harmed. You ought not to harm the person for the sake of saving the five. And here it's very important in the trolley case, the contrasting case, that you're the driver, and she claims you would either harm the five, kill the five, you would kill the five, even though there's nothing you could do about it. She thinks as the driver you'd be violating their rights by killing them, or you could violate the rights against being harmed of one. So this is a rights, don't violate the negative rights of one, or don't violate the negative rights of five. Numbers matter in this case, but it's negative rights versus negative rights. Whereas the transplant case is one person's negative right against five people's positive rights. She claims the, their, um, the negative right trumps the positive rights. Now, it's interesting that um, the, the trolley case took off from here, and I won't go on the, the, the many different versions of looping, bridges, etc., various changes, but one very small change already shows us a problem with her proposed solution, which was to appeal to negative and positive rights. <coughs> Because the way it's done now in the literature, thanks to another great uh, woman uh, philosopher, Judith Jarvis Thompson, she did the following very small change, which makes all the difference to this argument. She said, instead of you being the driver of the trolley, you're a bystander at a spur, and you can flip the switch. If you don't flip the switch, you see that this trolley will go on and crush five. If you do, you can redirect it, and it will kill one. Now, that is a case most plausibly construed as uh, if you let it go, you're failing to save the five. You're not acting on their positive rights. You're not protecting their positive rights to be saved. Or if you redirect it on the sidetrack, you're killing the one. You're violating his right against being harmed. Nonetheless, uh, many people think, and in various studies, we won't do the show of hands here, uh, that it's perfectly permissible to redirect it. So I think the, the, the subsequent discussion has showed that it's um, uh, Foote's first proposed solution is at the very least problematic, right? A very small change in the case she proposed shows that her principle can't be doing all the work, the difference between negative and positive rights. And what's interesting, I don't know if this inspired her at the time, but um, when she was in London during the war... Uh, uh, the, uh, some of you may know this case the, the Germans were launching V1 and V2 bombs at central London and British intelligence redirected them by giving them false information towards less populated areas on the outskirts of London and by some estimates saved many thousands of lives as a consequence so there's a bit of a distraction here. What are these people doing on the track anyway, etc.? I mean, maybe they're all signed up to some policy. Let's save the, minimize the number of workers who are being killed, etc. Now imagine that this is a V1 rocket. This is the British government's policy of redirecting it towards less populated areas. 
this is it, of letting the Germans hit those that they intended to hit to begin with. Right? Um, it's interesting, though, it's, there's no trace of it in her articles, but one wonders mm -hmm. whether it was part of the thinking that went to, to, to generating interest in the trolley problem. I'd be very surprised if it was common knowledge at the time, though, wouldn't you? That's true, though. It was written about somewhat later. Uh -huh. I mean, in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, but first, during the war, that's true. probably that's true. they would have done anything rather than let us hurt. That's true. That's absolutely true. Um, uh, though, though perhaps when she was writing the articles in the 60s or uh, 70s, it was it, by then it was known. common knowledge. Yes. And a lot of people at Oxford worked in the secret services. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It's many philosophers yeah. in the world. Anyway, so it's, it may just be pure accident that she herself was a beneficiary of the redirection because she lived in central London um, uh, or that it was in the air at the time. But the, uh, in essence, she, she launched a problem here, I think, uh, but... I would say, in my view, it, it, the, the, the initial solution was not entirely successful. Mm -hmm. What are well, your thoughts um, on this? I have sort of tremble uh, when people start to talk about the trolley problem because it has become so complicated and there are so many sort of layers of different distinctions. Um, um, I mean, it's inspired, you know, whether or not Philippa's original solution works, I think Alex is right that it, it doesn't. Um, or at least as soon as you try to generalize it, you, you, you run into trouble. Um, but it's certainly been absolutely seminal of an incredible, uh, incredible amount of very, very acute and sometimes also you know, really quite deep uh, thinking. But interestingly, when she first um, brought in this example, it was actually almost um, incidental to her main question and... You said it very clearly, that is, what is the difference between deciding, in the original trolley case, well, you're the driver, what's the difference between deciding to divert it to one and make it, letting it go on to five? Why is it that we think that it may, it's not only permissible, but many of us would think that we ought to divert it to, to kill just the one? Since if, yeah. um, why do we not reach the same verdict in the case of the one versus five where it's the organs transplant. So, in a way, she, the trolley problem was, as it were, incidental to trying to bring out what was special about this other case, which does have to do with the invasion of people's rights. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's interesting that, um, and, and then I think let's open up for discussion, that in, in rereading her articles on, in their collection, Moral Dilemmas, um, as a philosopher, what you do, a lot of these are questions of bioethics. If I saw someone reading Peter Singer's book uh, over, over there somewhere, The Life You Can Save or something. If, if one reads Peter Singer, it always ends with a punchline, this is what we ought to do. Right? And it's often a controversial claim that ends it grounded in moral theory. In, when one reads Philippa Foote's material, it's always about what is it that's bothering us about this case? Can we get clear on what's bothering us? And uh, are there principles, like she claimed the doctrine of double effect, that are leading us astray? So there's a kind of... The, the first... I mean, it, it's a paper on abortion. It's called Abortion yeah. and the Doctrine of Double Effect. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, now we're going to get to the end, and she's going to tell me whether she thinks abortion is justified or not. None of that. She figures she's cleared away some of the dead wood, so now we know, now we see the problem clearly... And let's talk about that, and then uh, you get to talk about it, right? She, sees, she seems to see her job as a philosopher 
a lot as um, making us see clearly what's at stake rather than telling us this is what you ought to do. Yes, absolutely. I think that's right. Helping people to think more clearly mm. rather than producing some justified verdict, I think. Isn't that a bit small for philosophy? Helping people to think more clearly. Well, I mean, in the end, uh, but the, the question still needs to be resolved. Um, I suspect that Philip of Foot thought, although I don't know for sure, that, um, that there is no single clear-cut answer to that particular question. I mean, mm. I suspect that she thought that abortion is legitimate in some cases and not, or at least, you know, one could understand someone thinking not in others, mm. and maybe there are also going to be cases in between. Um, so that unless you know more about the situation, you're not going to be able to... There is no single answer. Mm. Yeah. I think that's probably what she would have thought. Okay, thanks. Shall we... Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, we have about half an hour for discussion, so, yeah. Well, thanks, that was fascinating. Two points. One, when we were talking about the trolley case, I was thinking about the, the, the abortion business, about the healthy babies and the downed babies, and I put the five down babies there, you, you, you divert to say five downs or, or the other way around, you have uh, one healthy one versus five. I didn't want to talk about that a bit more. But the other one I wanted to raise was this, this, this is about the force of moral reason. Now to me that's a zoomer. Is there reason in morality back to peas and the spoon? And I just wanted to flag that up and see what you, if, if you have anything to comment on that. Do you want to start off? Well, I think she came to the view... I mean, it was a puzzle about when it started. Um, why isn't... Uh, why are the so-called imperatives of morality... Why are they not like the equally categorical, in the logical sense, imperatives of etiquette, right? And we can just... Nobody, you know, thinks that there's something seriously wrong with us if we just shrug off etiquette and say, I just don't want to buy into any of that stuff. Why is it not like that with morality, right? And when she first posed this question with the comparison with etiquette, she didn't really have an answer. And then later, I mean decades later, she sort of worked towards an answer, which was this rather slightly diffuse thing that I was trying to say about basic human needs. I mean, no basic human need is served by eating peas with a fork rather than a spoon. Um, uh, whereas, you know, what I said before sort of clicks in. Yeah. But whether that would satisfy you, only you can decide. Yeah. If, if I might add, so I, I take it that her view was that, look, uh, given the types of beings that we are and the needs that we have, we have to recognize certain things as important to lead uh, a minimally decent human lives together. And it's the recognition of those things as important, which is part of practical reason about deciding what to do. So you are indeed being irrational if you, uh, on her view, in, or at least you're defective in your reasoning, if you don't recognize uh, the, the, the pain of your children as a reason for alleviating that pain. Um, I take it that, this, that that's something like, like her, her answer, just in the way that she drew parallels with other animals. So suppose that a, um, uh, uh, a wolf isn't, uh, what was it, the, isn't fierce 
uh, in defending its territory, right? Well, the, uh, it, it couldn't lead the life, uh, a good wolf's life, so to speak, if it didn't have certain characteristics like that. And a wolf would be defective if it lacked in that respect. Um, if every time it saw a squirrel, it decided that bared its teeth, it, uh, it turned and ran, right? So similarly, I think her argument was human beings have to recognize certain things as giving them reasons for action, like the suffering of another that you can easily alleviate, the fact that you promised someone, uh, etc., for us to be able to lead, you know, uh, together human lives that meet our most basic human needs. That was the role, I think, that she thought reason played in or the, the link that morality had with reason. Is that... I think that's right, and I think that she, um, maybe especially in some of the later material, um, puts a lot of weight on things like the sense of solidarity with other people, which makes us feel bad if we do, if we attempt to do free riding mm. and stuff like that. I mean, okay, I can get away with it. It's not really going to, at least, if just me, I do it, dam- damage the community. But nonetheless, we feel that's somewhat disgraceful, or we often do. Um, And I think that her approach to this, which rather ties in with something that we were both saying earlier, is that instead of thinking that this sense of solidarity, which perhaps often leads us in in the end to do the right thing, or to take our share of the burdens, that sense of solidarity, instead of being something that philosophers should find really basically puzzling, because it just doesn't seem to be rational, Instead, we should do a complete flip-flop in our way of looking at it and see this as itself a rational way to be, that is, have that sense of solidarity with our fellow human beings, a rational way to be given that we're the kind of creatures who need to live in communities. Um, Do you think... Uh, yeah. Yes, although I, I'm, I'm you not may persuaded not, by you the may view, not but be I think persuaded. that's, no. I, 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 that's, <laughs> a, that's as good as it gets. From your encounters with her, was she the sort of person who initially, at the early, earlier times, have eaten her peas with a spoon and then moved on to the fork, or the other way around? Um, I'm sure she always ate her peas with a fork. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I also think she she would have she would have thought I mean she had a strong sense of the ridiculous. I think she would have thought you know it is fairly ridiculous that we make a thing about that. Yeah. Okay, let's take another question. Yes. Um, well, she, as far as I know, she was not from a Catholic background. Um, I believe she was an atheist throughout her adult life. And um, I just read or reread something which said she was always a Labour supporter. So she was a, you know, she was kind of a socialist without, I th- nothing about Marxism, but... Uh, so that was her, that was where she was. What was her maiden name? Bosenkett. she was related to... Um, I've never heard of there being any other philosophers in the family, but um, who knows? Maybe it has some hidden connection. But she was the granddaughter of the President of the United States, so some people may think that's more important. Yeah. Uh, Grover Cleveland. Yes, her mother was, uh, that was, he was her grand, maternal grandfather. 
Her mother was the first baby born in the White House. <laughs> so, you know, that's where they learnt not to eat peas with the spoon. <laughs> in America? No, no, no. No, no, I know in America it's all funny, yes. Yes. Yeah, you... You were just talking just then about the reasons for actually the reasons that... Lead to a successful and flourishing society. But does that not necessarily perhaps push you into quite a positivist uh, moral theory? In particular, you're, you might, it might lead you to conclude that what you should do is just the socially optimal uh, thing to do, push you into a more consequentialist position. Um, it's good. You, you mean positivist in the sense of Kant? The, the, you mean positivist in the center in the sense of Auguste Comte, the the utilitarian? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that, I mean it. It is interesting. The thought is though that we're talking about dispositions, um, <coughs> and uh, rather than particular actions, right? And it's not some kind of. Uh, uh, there's many ways in which it's different from utilitarianism. Sorry, let me let me get two things. First is, as I understand her view, it's that one ought to that uh, 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 it's natural for human beings, given the types of beings that we are and the needs that we have, to come to care about certain things, and it's a defect if they don't. Right, which is to a certain degree of solidarity, a certain degree of caring about your own health, about others, about uh, rules following certain rules that we make, right? Um, now, those rules uh, and the 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 behaviour to which these impulses give rise, the virtues and vices, right? Have to the the, the virtues have to tend towards the human good. Right? They have to tend towards meeting certain basic human needs, and so do the rules. Uh, um, however, there's no assumption that there's then some construct as the total good, uh, like utilitarianism requires, right? But your well-being, your neighbor's well-being, and we sum it all up, and that's what we ought to maximize, right? So there's two ways in which it's different from utilitarianism. The first is that um, it's not about individual actions, but rather about character dispositions, and uh, including the disposition to adhere to certain rules, like promise-keeping, property, etc. And the second difference from ordinary act utilitarianism is that there's no notion of the total good. Of course, that means that certain things are left rather vague, right? It's very rare in life that a particular set of virtues, right, uh, that we have in our society will, will not involve trade-offs. Right? The way we've organized things now, we think that certain rights, including property rights, stand in the way respect for these should stand in the way of doing a lot of good, right? So benevolence is constrained by justice. We can imagine that this might, the world might be, in certain respects, a better place if we placed less weight in certain trade-off situations on justice and more on benevolence. So uh, Foote isn't committed to any precise formula in, in, in these cases, right? But I think she would be very resistant to the notion of there being anything morally significant as the to or except as a, as a kind of theoretical co
construct the total well-being that we ought to have, that, that virtues and vices promote. Uh, sorry, virtues promote and, and vices detract from. Okay. Should we take the next question, or do you want to add something? No, that's fine. I'm happy. Um, okay, so the point about these universal uh, and basic human needs seems to be, it, it seems to bring us to say, um, if we want to um, to flourish and, and survive and continue to survive, then there will be certain things we should do about recognizing solidarity and all of that. But I wonder what Philip Foote would say to the question, why, why should we want to survive in the first place? <laughs> Well, um, I think that's a very good question, and actually, um, people don't always realise this, but this is uh, this, this features in G. E. Moore's Principia Ethica. You probably know that. Um, um, he points out that um, a great many of our, as it were, moral, what we think of as morally um, necessary things, actually is based on a kind of, well, not exactly a hypothetical, but it's conditioned on the fact that we take it for granted that it's good that life should go on, um, if not for just for ourselves or for every single person, but at any rate for the species, for our country, for our family and so forth. And um, I'm not sure that, well, I have to say I haven't really thought nearly enough about this, um, whatever enough would be. But I think, I think it makes sense to ask, do we need to have a reason for living? I mean, if we do, most of us want to live, and that's very important to us, doesn't that situation in itself constitute a ground for us to respect each other's safety and, and, and help each other with health care and stuff like that. Um, do we have to have, as it were, a theoretical justification to... Now, what I've just said may work, but it might still be... Well, but is this a curious fact, or maybe not so curious, but I mean, it's, it, it, it is a fact that we can, we can want to under, understand better, or want to... You know, is there a justification for our continuing to live? And I think as soon as one asks that question, one gets into very deep water. Um, I mean, one of the deep waters that one gets into is that, you know, as is only too easy or reasonable these days to worry about the world having to, or our planet having too many people, right? And one can sometimes find oneself wondering, you know, usually leaving oneself out of the argument. Um, <laughs> Is it somehow better for the universe or for the human race that there should that every single person who's now born, you know, has a good chance should have not that everybody does yet, but a good chance of surviving and living to be ninety and having not only children, grandchildren, but great great grandchildren. With, I, yeah. I, I took it though that your question might be, you know, even tougher for for someone with with. Foot's views, as we've been trying to put it here. Of course, it would be better if she were here to, to defend herself. But um, as I understood what you were asking, it's really like leave aside currently existing people, right? It's on her, you know, analogy with other animals, mm -hmm. which she draws for the virtu human virtues and vices. It's natural for animals 
to uh, want to propagate, uh, mm-hmm. or want, at least they, they probably don't give much thought to the fact that there will be offspring as a consequence, but you know, to have the desires to, that lead to procreation, etc. And one might say those are, uh, those are um, the way animals should be. That's a normal species functioning. Now apply that to human beings. Um, it seems as if she would be committed to the view that um, it's uh, virtuous for us to want to keep on, uh, to want to have children and to propagate the species. Whereas it seems, you know, uh, uh, rather than it's straightforwardly virtuous, something that we should be able to morally debate. So doesn't that show a difficulty with this idea? Uh, the title of her last book was Natural Goodness, of, of trying to relate what's virtuous mm-hmm. to what it is part of good species functioning. Um, well, I think when you think of this concept, natural goodness, um, uh, in the case of human beings, and maybe not any of the other animals that we're familiar with, um, nature... Um, as we know from our experience, means much more than just biological nature. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, um, I think that she could get quite a long way towards answering your question just on that basis. I mean, you know, arguably, um, it's unnatural for human beings to be packed together um, into in a lecture hall in the dark. Yes, <laughs> where, in, you know, where they, you know, each family has just a few square, a, a tiny room to live in, and yeah. so on. Um, so we can't exercise properly, we can't see nature, we can't breathe fresh air and all of these things, okay? And arguably that is clearly, as clearly contrary to human nature as, for example, being unable to propagate is contrary mm. to general biological human nature. Then the question arises, as so often it's come up several times already in this discussion, um, we might have, in a practical situation, we might have competing so we might want to have a city which is cleaner, more spacious, and so on and so forth, but the only way we can do it is by getting rid of a lot of people. Is that acceptable? Or somehow <laughs> m- moving so that... A difficult question. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, trying to, to curb the birth rate so that in the next generation it might be seriously smaller or, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, you know, the practical questions ramify because we right. one value against another. And then, you know, each family wants to have one or more children, or at least we think they have the right to, and so on and so on and so on. I think it's fair to say at this point that something applies, which I said before, which is Foote didn't see it as part of a project to answer a a series of of problematic questions, but rather, and you may regard this as a good or bad thing about her, her work, but rather to help identify the right way to think about moral questions, like the objectivity of morals or um, the problem of abortion, etc., rather than... So it's, it's perhaps not surprising that we can't... We're struggling to think of what she would say in response to your question. Yeah, um, yeah so there's... Um, there's a, well, you mentioned there's obviously a fair amount of Aristotelian influence here, and um, so what I find interesting about, about Aristotelian ethics is that there's a sort of holism to it, right? There's this kind of notion of the good life good life includes you know, acting ethically towards others, but also sort of virtues of prudence, and, you know, so it's kind of connection in there. Um, and that obviously has connections with this, um, this idea of kind of universal um, So, 
that's correct but he, he probably had uh, considers himself to have a good life and probably we might want to say that yes he did um, but I mean you've raised two uh, different issues one of them is what about if one is a psychopath you know is it possible to have a good life is a good psychopath is a psychopath's good life something we should as it were try to make happen for the psychopath so on and so forth that, so that's one question um, with, to which I don't actually have a ready answer. And then a, a different question, uh, perhaps um, in a way more serious question, because more people are involved, is equality or rather gross inequality, um, such as occurs in a slave-owning society. And <coughs> I may mean... It would be nice to be able to say... Um, nobody can really have a good life while some people in the society are having a really terrible life and the first the, the, the happy people are actually that the goodness of their good life depends on the on the, the, the trampled down status of those other people it would be nice to be able to say that but I don't think that you know realistically one can I think some I'm not saying, of course, that inequality, in, gross inequality or, and injustice are necessary conditions for people to have good lives. But I just want to say that I do believe that some people who've been lucky enough to be, as it were, at the top of the tree in a social situation like that probably did have good lives. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, the question of whether, you know, it's worth, if the goodness of their good lives, as, as it were, counterbalances or makes up for the misery um, that perhaps helped to support it. Um, maybe, that's, maybe that's your question, but again... I think the notion of counterbalancing is almost kind of foreign to this, the whole... I think, that's right. I think that's right. I think that's right. Just as, so long as you exhibit the virtues, well, that is a good life. Um, I mean, it's almost kind of... Besides the point, what are the preconditions for that, or the external conditions? Um, so I think that's the worry. I mean, well, what one again? I don't. Uh, it's not my view, but what one might say in, in reply here is that there's, there's there's definitely something lacking in the life of someone who's insensitive to the fate of uh, the slaves that support them. Right? And historically, I think cases of great injustice, at least those that I'm familiar, familiar with through reading about, uh, involve a kind of 
forcible separating oneself yeah. from blocking out the, the situation of others. Uh, doing a kind of violence to the natural flow of solidarity or sympathy. And now they're, they're, con- they're countervailing human motives like pride and wanting to be in a better position. But I think that if within virtue ethics one would try to uh, account for why um, the virtues couldn't, prop- couldn't be fully displayed in a slave-owning society, I think one would have to talk about the distorting effects of such a society, uh, or one that you know uh, murdered Jews, or uh, various uh, other atrocities, right? That there's a there's a kind of lack of flourishing, at least certain respects, a kind of warping of natural human tendencies, um, so that even if life would go well in other respects, you wouldn't be fully flourishing as a human being because you'd have to have this like, unnatural cutting off from certain uh, human feelings. Um, well, let's yeah. take another question. There were quite a few other questions. Um, you had your hand up earlier. Do you still have a question? Yeah. Oh, well, uh, several times I've had things to say. Just, just as the last one, I would agree with you. Uh, in the um, uh, Pompeii exhibition, it was quite clear that there was a um, there was a um, commerce of, of feeling and and sympathy throughout because there was a neighborhood and, uh, and um, slaves were in fact very often enabled to become citizens of Rome and, um, and, the, citizen, and the slaves were part of a, a household or, um, where they, the feelings wouldn't have been very, very different to ordinary kind of helpers in, in our society, people who are less... Uh, foreigners coming in, as it were, and mm. helping. So it's, it's not quite uh, slaves being whipped all the time, but um, sympathy, and sometimes they actually inherited. But that was the last thing I thought of, because you just mentioned it. Mm. The other things I won't go back to. Okay, well, let's just maybe then take that as a comment, and then you, you had a question. I'm quite interested in what you said about how... <coughs> she spent a lot of time kind of finding out what the problem was and not necessarily solving it. I, I'm, I come from an economics, I'm an economist, and I am continually being accused of uh, never solving a problem and just reframing it. I also no- noted that you uh, you said that she worked as an economist. I'd like to know to what extent did uh, economics uh, come into her, her, her ideas in her work? Well, I'll say something briefly. I don't know very much about this, except that she, she told me she studied uh, PPE at Oxford, but that because of her background, she, she thought economics was very interesting, but she hadn't had much math training. So she found that, uh, though she liked the theoretical aspect of economics, she, she found she was better at doing philosophy. Uh, and I think she just worked as an economist because uh, that was the war work that uh, she was given. Um, I, I don't think that later, reading on her work later on, doesn't show much influence from uh, the economics training that she had. Early thoughts about morality is not necessarily rational. That's an interesting question. It may well have been. I mean, she, she may at least, she would at least have been educated into the standard model of uh, preference. Uh, preferences and uh, um, uh, utility maximization. 
as a way of modeling, for example, rational consumers. So perhaps it had some echoes in your thought, but that would just be speculating. Yeah. Right, I think we have time for just one last brief question. Yes. Um, just going back to yourself and Dean's point, you're saying that you're not fully flourishing if you're having a society in which some people are slaves and kind of working off that. Your earlier point about why did you care, well, we care because we want to have a society that exists. We need a society. So why do I care that I'm not flourishing? Uh, why, do I, why do you care that you're not flourishing? Because I live in a society that fulfills my need to have a society. Right. So I've ticked that box. Yes. <laughs> you have a lot of good because other people are working for you. Yes, a lot of spare time to do philosophy. Right yes. So why do I care I'm not flourishing? Yes. Um, I'm going to pass this one to our Aristotelian, <laughs> our Aristotelian expert. Well, um, I said something different. I'm not particularly trying to speak on behalf of Philip Foote. I think um, more realistically um, that even in a situation of gross inequality and exploitation, it may well be that some people do have good lives. And it may well be that they have those good lives at least partly, if not completely, at the expense of the, of the, of the oppressed people. Um, so to say to them, well, you're not really flourishing because you're living in the midst of all this, all this horrible stuff, uh, if they say, well, I'm fine with my life, um, that's, that's, uh, so your question is, what do we say to them then? Well, I would, as it were, on a more empirical basis perhaps, just say, well, okay, you have a good life, but has it ever occurred to you that maybe we can spread the goods a little bit more widely, maybe we can have more freedom more respect for rights and so on and so forth. And then, of course, the way that that conversation continues is just going to depend on you, not me. <laughs> so, yeah. so I wouldn't say, uh, so you live well. Actually, this is quite a good starting point for this conversation. You live well, but now what about those other people? Um, and then, depending on the person's personality, uh, they might think, well, you know, what do they have to do with me? Or they may think, wow, you know, and their eyes may be open, <laughs> their eyes may be opened a little bit, and, and so on. Right. Okay. Um, I'm sure we could continue discussing for a long time, but unfortunately, we have to end here. So please join me in thanking Alex and Sarah.